In the name of the holy and undivided Trinity, one God. Amen. The church where I was baptized in Baltimore once published a semi-regular parish cookbook for a fundraiser or something. I don't seem to own a copy of it, but I'm sure if my mother were to bring me one and we were to flip through it, we'd find 17 recipes for macaroni salad, each with a singularly unique ingredient two dozen variations on deviled eggs, endless casseroles and jello salads, punch made with 7-Up, and all of those familiar recipes we'd expect to find in a church cookbook. But of course, what made me think of those cookbooks wasn't some long-running search for something to take to grub theology but it was instead the cookbook's title, Five Loaves and Two Fish. When we hear that simple phrase, most of us immediately know what it refers to, the feeding of the 5,000, which we read in today's scripture passages. The feeding of the 5,000 is, of course, one of the more familiar gospel stories and one of only two miracles that occur in all four gospels. The other, of course, being the most familiar story, the resurrection. It's something we all have heard preached year after year and we just know it. We know what to expect. And even knowing it so well that at Bible study this week, we didn't know what else to say that hadn't been said about it before. So I looked a little harder. And I think I found something. As the passage is printed in your bulletins, and as it was read, it's missing part of its first verse. Verse 13 starts, Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. When the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus heard this, when the crowds heard it. Do you know what it's referring to? The 12 verses that precede today's reading point to another important story, one that we hear less frequently, perhaps because it gives us a less than happy feeling the beheading of John the Baptist. Herod arrests John for questioning his marriage to his brother's wife, but because the crowds regarded John as a prophet, Herod feared executing him. Herodias, his wife, 
gets clever and sets up a crafty scheme. She has her daughter dance before Herod and his guests at a banquet. Herod was so pleased with her dancing that he promised her anything she might ask. Prompted by Herodias, she asks for the head of John the Baptist. And Herod, not wanting to be shamed before his guests, complies. He presents her with John's head brought on a platter. That is the correct face to make in response to that. Now when Jesus heard this, when he heard that John had been killed, he withdrew in a boat to a deserted place by himself. When the crowds heard it, when the crowds had heard that John had been executed, they followed him on foot from the towns. So when Jesus comes ashore after taking the time he needed to process John's death, he steps from the boat and sees this crowd, sees a wailing crowd. And even through his sorrow, he did what he needed to do. He had compassion on them because he too was deep in grief over John's death. If we read this story through that lens, through an interpretation that the crowds were grieving John's arrest and murder, we can see in the story of the feeding of the 5,000 that true wilderness experience, both in the figurative and literal sense. These people have come from the towns and into the wilderness. And while we're not explicitly told what emotion they're experiencing, we know that they're doing this as a reaction to John's beheading, which tells us that they're facing deep grief, sorrow, frustration, anger, fear, listlessness. Because yet again, the boot of Rome is on their necks. And Jesus looks at them with compassion because he is also experiencing that same grief, sorrow, frustration, anger, fear, and listlessness. If they can arrest and kill John, can't they do the same to him? After all, the crowds regard him as a prophet, too. Can you imagine being in that crowd? All of that raw emotion spilling out into a tight-throated, chaotic frenzy that is simultaneously still and explosive. 
in the summer of 2020. I felt that energy several times in about a two to three week span. On May 25th, George Floyd was lynched by a Minneapolis police officer. In the following weeks, the nation reeled in deep turmoil and anguish over yet another black body killed by law enforcement officers. I stood outside the Oakland Police Department a few days later with hundreds, nearly a thousand other people collectively mourning the sin of police violence before the police turned on us with flashbangs and tear gas. A few days later, over 15,000 people, maybe even as many as 20,000 of us, gathered at Dolores Park and marched through the streets of San Francisco. And the magnitude of this solidarity march flooded the entire city with cheers and support as we raised our signs and raised our fists even higher. In Berkeley that following Saturday, over 4,000 of us gathered and chanted, say their name, as leaders recited a litany of names of people, black people killed by police before we took to the streets behind a marching band, symbolizing our desire to bury racism in the spirit of a New Orleans funeral procession. A week later, 1,200 people gathered at the Rockridge BART station in Oakland, and we marched to Sproul Plaza on the UC Berkeley campus where we knelt in silence for eight minutes and 46 seconds. With the same energy of those protests, Jesus is there in the wilderness with 5,000 men and an unnamed number of women and children, all angry, all distraught, at the same time restless and anxious about what comes next. Jesus no longer has a crowd, but an army. And so Jesus does what any military leader would do he gives the crowd bread and circuses, gives them what they need to lead them to victory. And this is what the people want. They want to feel like they've made a difference. They want Rome's boot off their necks. They want systemic change that will eliminate the top-down mechanisms of empire and oppression, which defines their occupation. They want the people 
to join them as they march down the streets chanting, no justice, no peace. And Jesus takes the five loaves and two fish that the disciples had on hand and he breaks the bread. And he shares that bread with the grieving, suffering crowd. And there is enough bread that they all are full. Each person is satisfied. A sensation that even today is relatively unknown to the poor and oppressed. In Jesus' action of feeding the crowds, he unites them to themselves, connects the community to itself. They aren't bound together by oaths sworn to the provider of bread, but through their commonality, through their cumulative suffering, through their collective grief, through their desire to strive for peace and justice, through their sorrow, frustration, anger, fear, and listlessness, through their desire to have enough to eat, and above all, through Jesus' compassion for them, his compassion for their restlessness and anxiety. Their banquet ends in forging a new community of people who commit themselves to looking for a better world. They're like the people of Israel who fleed Egypt into the wilderness as a ragtag group of runaway slaves and wandered, afraid. But God gave them manna and they came out a people of God, the people of God. Their mourning became rejoicing. What would it truly look like for the bread which we break to make us into people who find commonality in our experience? How could that bread make us into a community of people who like each other, who break bread together and who become family. Amen. <laughs>